Our reading this morning is from Luke 12, 49 to 53. This is what Holy Scripture says. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord, and it is true. This past week, we celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. Why did we celebrate his birthday? Well, we celebrated because Dr. King gave his life to fight for the freedom and equality of every single man, woman, and child in this country. And that's certainly something to celebrate. It's inspiring and it's humbling to see a man like Dr. King be so passionate for a noble cause. However, it resulted in many people being angry with him. Dr. King ruffled feathers. He confronted the accepted norms, not because he was looking to be a troublemaker, but because he firmly believed all of us are created in the image of God and deserve equal treatment. And in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. King responded to a newspaper article written by eight white Alabama clergymen criticizing him for his methods of nonviolent protest. They wanted activists to wait, let the courts do their work. They wanted leaders like Dr. King to obey the laws of the land, even if they are or were unjust. But Dr. King disagreed, and he wrote this in his letter, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. You see, Dr. King refused to remain silent, and people hated him for it. Now, if you have your outline in the bulletin, especially kids, if you're following along, you'll notice I have uh, something a little different we've never really done here at King's Church, a little fill-in-the-blank there. And this first point, I want you to take note, and feel free, if you have a pencil or pen, you can write this in. Sometimes people won't like you if you passionately believe in something. Sometimes people won't like you if you passionately believe in something. Now, this is a fact that applies to all of life. And I can tell you how hard that simple point is for a people pleaser like me. I must confess, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say this, I don't know if I was alive during Dr. King's movement, I don't know if I would have been marching with him. I might have been one of the silent moderates 
that Dr. King rebuked in his letter, waiting for the courts to address the evil of segregation, who preferred obedience to the law over justice for African Americans. I don't know what I would have done. What about you? Do you believe in something so passionately that you find people hate you? Or do you tend to go through life getting along with everyone, not rocking the boat? It's scary to stand up for what we believe, to care about something enough to offend another person. Take, for example, our political climate. I, I hear from some who work in higher education, college professors perhaps, who might align more closely uh, with politically conservative policies, perhaps even, believe it or not, might support President Trump. And they're scared to death that any of their colleagues might find out they're a card-carrying Republican. On the flip side, what about those of you in our church who might align more closely to the Democratic Party? Maybe even you're a supporter of Bernie Sanders. Think about that. We are a more theologically conservative evangelical church, which stereotypically is aligned with politically conservative policies. So you might be afraid someone might find out that you're considering voting for a candidate like Sanders. But whether you're in the college classroom or in your community group, you're challenged, aren't you, with standing up with something you believe in because you're afraid it might lead to fractured relationships, isolation, condemnation. By the way, our church doesn't adhere to any political party, so whether you support Trump or uh, Elizabeth Warren, you're welcome here. And, and if you're visiting, you might wonder, well, how could that be? How could you have Trump supporters and Warren supporters in the same place doing life together? How could, how could that be? Well, the answer is, my friends, it's Jesus. Because Jesus has our ultimate loyalty. He is the one we belong to first. And therefore, we're willing to do life with people who might be different. So this morning, we're challenged with this concept of loyalty. Who are you ultimately loyal to? Pino Lella was asked that question many times in the book based on his life, Beneath the Scarlet Sky. Maybe you read it. It's bestseller. I'm finishing up the audio book. It's a true story. It takes place in Italy during World War II. A movie's coming out starring Tom Holland, who is the actor who plays Spider-Man in all the famous films. Um, At the age of 17, Pino was recruited by a Catholic priest to help Jews secretly sneak through the Alps from Italy into Switzerland to save them from the Nazi persecution. But Pino's loyalties were challenged, put to the test, when his parents forced him at the age of 18, to join the Nazi army, thinking it would save his life because Italian young men who were recruited into the army at that time were sent by the Germans to the Russian front. And you had a 50% chance of surviving on the Russian front. And so through a series of events, Pino eventually became the personal driver for one of Adolf Hitler's left-hand 
generals in Italy, Hans Liers, one of the Third Reich's most powerful and mysterious generals. But Pino's family, especially his brother, who was a part of the resistant movement in Italy, didn't know this, that Pino was actually acting as a spy for the Allies. His brother hated him for being a Nazi. His family was wondering what was going on because Pino couldn't tell them their lives and his life would be at risk if he did. He was actually gathering information through his connection with the general and sending messages to London through a shortwave radio. And so he was, he, he was forced to uh, endure his family's hatred because he believed in a greater cause, something that compelled him, something like freedom, something like the equal rights of all men and women to be treated equally. It was a heart-wrenching decision. It was something that almost killed him emotionally and physically. But it was a passionate belief that moved him, that compelled him to do something dangerous. And it risked his family and it risked his very life. Friends, that's what Jesus calls us to. To be a follower of Christ, here's the next line you can fill in here. To be a follower of Christ, or to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ. That's what being a Christian means. It means Jesus directs us, Jesus calls us, Jesus leads us. And it means you're willing to follow him wherever he might lead. It means that Jesus is the most important person in your life, that your loyalty is ultimately to him. That's what the challenge Jesus gives us here in the passage. If you notice in verse 51, notice what Jesus says. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Peace on earth. Well, our reaction to that might be as Christians, well, yes, we just celebrated Christmas, right? What do we talk about at Christmas time? Peace on earth. That's what the angels sang, right? To the shepherds. Of course, Jesus brings peace on earth. But does that mean Jesus came to make my life easy or my life comfortable Is that what Jesus promises me? Well, Jesus says, no, I tell you, but rather division. Rarely do Christians talk about this aspect of Jesus' mission. It's not very friendly. It's not enticing. But when we think about why Jesus came, we tend to think about passages like in Luke 19, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Or maybe we think of Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Or perhaps in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Or maybe even we focus on John 10.10, which says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I like that one. I want abundant life, don't you? That's why Jesus came. That's more like it. That's the Jesus we like. But what does Jesus say in our passage? In verse 49, 
I kind of, I, sometimes I like to throw in different translations than what we read. And here I want you to see a new living translation because sometimes when you look at a different translation, it brings the verse to life maybe in a fresh way. And so in the new living translation, they put it like this. I have come to set the world on fire. And I wish it were already burning. Jesus, what are you telling us? What could that mean? That doesn't sound loving and compassionate. That doesn't sound like the Jesus we know. But in fact, this is the very Jesus John the Baptist talked about when he predicted the coming of the Messiah. In Luke 3, notice John the Baptist's words about Jesus. He says this, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gather the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. I love the way that wraps up here. Uh, John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. <laughs> good news. It is good news. It is good news. What is this winnowing fork? Well, we've got a slide here. You'll see this young woman. Uh, she's throwing uh, the wheat that has been harvested in the air in, in the shaft. Uh, the wind will blow the shaft away and the wheat kernels will fall into the net. And the next slide shows you the difference between the two. And that's what John is talking about. It's this purifying act. And that's uh, what Jesus seems to be referring to. In the Old Testament, fire can mean several things and, and illustrate several things. And one of the things is judgment, a purifying judgment, a kind of judgment that makes something better than it was before. And this purifying fire is what Jesus is talking about here. What he's saying is he has come to separate those who are pretending to follow Jesus and those who really want to follow Jesus. And so which one are you? Are you pretending? Or do you really want to follow him? That's what Jesus is calling us to. I like how Eugene Peterson puts uh, verse 51 in the message. Do you think I came to smooth things over and make everything nice? Not so. I've come to disrupt and confront. Now, we think of division in the church. Lots of, unfortunately, the, the church has this reputation. It can be a place where people betray one another and backbiting and rumors and gossip and, and, and hurt and uh, divisiveness. Now, unfortunately, that's very real in a, in a lot of churches. But Jesus is not talking about that kind of division here. Uh, Jesus is talking about a purifying that happens. And here you can fill in, if you'd like, in your outline. Jesus' purifying fire disrupts and confronts us. In other words, we might be going through life thinking everything's cool. My life's good. And Jesus comes along and he disrupts us. And he confronts us. 
Because our loyalties are divided. Because we have our own agenda for our life, and Jesus has a different agenda for our lives, and he's saying, which one are you going to follow? And that's where his purifying fire comes into our lives and challenges us. And he brings home this point with the family illustration. You notice he, he talks about a father against a son, and a son against a father, and a mother against a daughter, and a daughter against a mother. And the one we all can relate to is the mother-in-law against the daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. It's the perfect passage for our first family worship of 2020, isn't it? We're all familiar with family infighting. We've all experienced it, right? There's lots of things that happen in our family that we fight about. A father wants his son to get better grades and is overbearing. The son wants his father to pay for his car. A mother-in-law might have unrealistic expectations of how her mother-in-law is taking care of her son. Maybe a daughter wants her mother to allow her to go on a date and she's controlling. There's lots of reasons we get into fights in our families. Many of you have stories. That happens all the time. And often that's because I, as a father or son, want what I want, and then my dad or my son or my daughter wants what she wants. And so you have these divided loyalties. Who's going to win out? The fighting happens. Now, that's what we all experience, but that's not the divisiveness and division that Jesus is talking about here. Because Jesus is talking about a division that happens when I want what Jesus wants. And my dad or my son wants what he wants. And when that happens, there's a divisiveness that comes. And Jesus is saying that his disciples must be loyal to him above all else. His will is primary. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, then Jesus is the most important person in your life. And what he wants comes first. Now, how can your loyalty be tested? How is it tested? Well, for some of you, it has already been tested. Some of you grew up in Buddhist homes. Your family uh, maybe were devout or maybe just culturally Buddhist. And you have come to faith in Jesus and you have had to tell your parents, listen, I am not going to practice these things anymore because of my devotion to Jesus. And you have risked, you have risked the love and acceptance of your parents and your siblings because you've made that decision. And can I tell you that we should celebrate that with you because you have made the hard choice. But you have made the choice that Jesus calls you to, and he is glorified in that choice. And I know that is hard for you. And I know you're living with the consequences of that even now. It's huge, and it's scary. What about calling? Maybe some of you have parents that are like, you're going to be a doctor, or you're going to be a lawyer, because 
They're depending on you as their retirement plan. (laughs) But you feel called to teach high school kids in an under-resourced urban school. Or perhaps you feel called to work as a social worker and help foster kids find homes. Because you sense Jesus calling you to something and it's at odds with what your parents want for you. And you've made that choice and we should celebrate that. Because you are honoring Christ in that decision. And that is hard. And you've risked the relationship with your family to do that. Or maybe... Some of you know, uh, I've heard stories of Christians who are in their 50s and 60s who have left everything to go to Asia as missionaries. And you know who they take flack from? Their kids. Because their kids have little kids, grandkids. And they're like, Mom, Dad, you've chosen to do this. Now my grandkids aren't going to have grandparents. Sorry, but Jesus has called us to this. And on the flip side, it happens the other way too, doesn't it? A younger family with young children go to South America to be missionaries. And their parents are furious because their grandkids are not around. Look what you've done. You've taken our grandkids away. That's right, because Jesus has called me to to do this. That's a tremendous sacrifice, and that should be celebrated. So what would cause us to do something so outrageous? What would cause us to give our life to Christ, our heart and our loyalty to him? Well, verse 50 is the secret, is the key here. If you notice, I'm going I'm to share with you the New Living Translation here of this verse. Jesus says this, I have a terrible baptism, a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Baptism here is not sprinkling of water (laughs) or dunking someone at the pool. The language here Jesus is using, it's it's of an overwhelming catastrophe, being overwhelmed by this, this terrible event, something that's very horrible and terrifying. That's the baptism, the baptism of suffering. And what is that baptism, friends? It's the cross. It's the cross. It's Jesus seeing the road that God the Father has called him on to go to the cross, to bear the sin of the world, to bear your sin and my sin, to die for us so that we might have life. And Jesus In this moment of sharing with his disciples, he calls it a heavy burden in the English standard. He says, how great is my distress. And I want you to imagine that as as Jesus feeling pressed in, almost like the walls are coming in. But what it's doing is it's focusing him. He's laser focused on his mission and what he's called to do. He's passionate about it, and no one is going to get in his way. And it's his intense focus here to accomplish this urgent task that God the Father has given him, and he's totally governed by it, 
And why is he so focused on it? One, he loves the Father. It's the plan. It's the, the goal the Father has give, given him. But second, because he loves you. He loves you. And he did it for you and for me. He gave himself for you and for me. And so now he calls you and me to give ourselves to him. One commentator describes the dynamics of this passage this way. It's kind of a long quote, so follow along with me. Certainly, Jesus came to bring peace. But it would never be superficial peace. It would never mean everyone agreeing. It would never make every follower likable and appreciated by everyone else. It would never mean a life filled with nothing but harmony, as if there would be no anger, no division, no uncertainty, no struggles. Those who would go Jesus' way travel a road with trouble and trial, sacrifice and sadness, darkness and despair. Yes, there will be joy and glory and life eternal. That will be in heaven, but also here and now. But the here and now is not only happiness, but hardship. Not only unity, but division. The road ahead is good, but not an easy road to travel. I'll end with this story. The president of Cornerstone University, Joseph Stowell, tells of a conversation he had with a pastor in the former Soviet Union. This pastor, an older man, shared a story long ago about how his loyalty to Jesus cost him much, but was ultimately used by God. You see, it was during Joseph Stalin's reign that this pastor had two KGB agents try to recruit him as a spy. They told him, listen, we'll be good to you if you weekly feed us messages about what the Christians are up to in your church. Now he refused. He said, I can't do that to God, and I can't do that to my flock. And so they sent him to a prison camp in Siberia. And he endured forced labor in, in the cold, <laughs> Siberia, for 10 years, 10 long years. And in that time, he found other Christians in the camp. And God used these believers to fulfill his purposes. The pastor shared this. He said, I was a carpenter building towns for Stalin. And we'd go in 60-mile radiuses, and there fellowship groups would gather and today there are hundreds of churches in Siberia as a result of these small prisoner fellowship groups. Friends, you may be risking a lot to follow Jesus. You may be risking your family. You may be risking your friends. You may be risking your career. But Jesus is worth the risk. Because he believed you were worth the risk. And God will use your faithfulness. Do you believe that? God will use your faithfulness. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, capture our hearts this morning. 
Capture our hearts. May we see your love for us. May we see the terrible baptism of suffering you endured on our behalf. And may that love transform us. Lord, we do not want to be a community that is driven by judgment and fear and condemnation and guilt. No. Because we believe in the gospel. We believe in the good news that you have come to give, us life, to give us life and abundant life. And that life is found only in you when we die to ourselves and live for you. And so may that be true of each and every man, woman, and child in this room. We pray this so that your name may be lifted high, Jesus. Amen.